Hey guys, welcome back to Crafting Fitness. Today, Mike and I discuss in-season anaerobic training for the CrossFit athlete. We refer to it as pain training throughout the episode. This is part three of our three-part series on in-season training for the CrossFit athlete. In this episode, we discuss how we define pain training, why perform pain training, how pain training differs from the in-season versus the off-season, considerations when designing pain training, and lastly, length of use and structuring of pain training. If you enjoy this episode, please like and share it with others as it helps us build our reach and be able to share more great content with the public. All right, we are back, and this week I'm glad to be back on with you. Last week was uh, out of pocket because of the competition, which was good. Glad you could handle that one on your own. It was good. It just finished listening to that one, a good overview on aerobic training. So, um, yeah, glad to be back. How are you doing? Great, Mike. Thanks. And uh, maybe we'll next episode or one of the future ones, we'll do a recap of Legends because I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts and experience and, and just, uh, yeah, hear more about that. I'm sure our listeners would enjoy hearing that as well. But yeah. glad to have you here. Yeah, it was an interesting, interesting group of tests. There's definitely some things to discuss there and look at. So that'd be a good thing to recap. Perfect. So today we're going to last week or the first week in this three part series, we talked about strength, strength training in season. And last week you talked about aerobic training in season. And so this week we're going to wrap up the three uh, with pain training or unsustainable threshold training and what that looks like, how we do it, um, why we do it and everything, everything about the pain side of training. So this is always a fun piece to talk about. It's one of my favorite styles of training for whatever reason. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about it. Awesome. Yeah. It's even when I was outlining these notes, I, uh, I was trying to, I was trying to more clearly outline it in my brain on like how I think about it and, and what's going on. And I think because it's so, uh, I don't say nuanced, but, it's very gray and there's lots of different camps on the semantics around it and what's really happening. And then when you throw in mixed elements in CrossFit, it almost everything goes out the window because you can't use the same definitions or ideas that you would in a different scenario with this, this unknown and uncontrollable per se circumstance. So it's, uh, it's interesting to talk about and hopefully as we talk about it, we can clearly articulate how we think about it, how we use it, and people can walk away with maybe a little better understanding, at least how we look at it, and then they can apply it to their own training or to their uh, their athletes' training as well. Yeah, when I think about this type of training, um, you know, James always made a big point of, of it being important to do do the work, to do CrossFit, to know, to understand the sport, to really be uh, invested in it from a training perspective. And I think this is one of those things that highlights that, that if you, there, you know, there's literature on unsustainable training and there's literature on critical power, which we'll discuss and things like that. But if you haven't ever done it in a mixed modal setting or in a CrossFit setting and haven't really ever felt it, then it, it's really difficult to explain and really understand how to write the workouts, the movements that you should choose for certain people and even what it's supposed to feel like and how it's supposed to make your other training feel. Um, because I, I think that's why I like it so much because 
And unfortunately, I don't do very much anymore. But when I have gone through phases of this, it's like you feel bulletproof with all your other workouts. Like mm -hmm. everything feels so good if this is peaked properly. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, and if you haven't experienced that, it's, it's just really hard to conceptualize. Yep. And I, I, I'm glad you, you made note of that. I think I wrote something down there regarding that, but to really understand or feel the difference between what I talked about last week and even what we talked about the week before with strength training, this is something you would need to do to then mm -hmm. be able to, to perceptually know how that, how it's different from this or different from that. Um, and which we'll get into, I think that you also have to have the capability to do it correctly because you mm -hmm. can give it to somebody who can't and they think, well, that wasn't that hard. It's like, mm -hmm. well, either you didn't go hard enough or you just can't go hard enough because you're not strong enough. You can't create enough power. So uh, the prereqs are important here. Um, but how about we get into how we define uh, pain training? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So we just get into your two definitions you got there. Perfect. Uh, so one thing I wrote worth noting from the onset, all energy systems are working in concert. Different rates of work will bias some more than others. Nothing in the body works in isolation. So that's always important because I think uh, a lot of uh, exercise physiology tries to segregate these different systems. And I don't think that sets up somebody's thought process well um, when instead you think about the body as a as a uh, holistic unit. And so everything's kind of involved and interacting uh, together at different rates and different times. And so they all impact each other. So even though we're going to talk about a specific realm of training, that's going to elicit certain responses. There's, there's uh, impact from these other systems that are playing a role as well. So the first definition I wrote down of how we're defining pain training is bouts of work that are unsustainable for the athlete, primarily in, in quotations, not driven by aerobic metabolism. And then the second definition is bouts of work that are performed above your critical power. So critical power, I'll attach a, a, a white paper uh, article to it so people can read further on what that is and uh, how uh, efficacious it is for controlled pieces of work to dictate paces and different levels of, uh, intensity. So if you're, if you're a cyclist, if you're a rower, if you're a runner, uh, I don't know about swimming, maybe, um, maybe it is with swimming too. You can, you can create a mathematical graph on different, uh, levels of output and whether those are sustainable or not. And so it's very fascinating because you can, you can use some of the ideas with CrossFit, but it's not like, <laughs> You know, because you, you can't graph out your mm -hmm. your critical power with kettlebell swing row and burpee, but you can mm -hmm. with rowing. So it has it has some application, maybe from a more uh, uh, an understanding perspective. But it's it the uh, the application of it is not as strong, um, which is why what you mentioned at the onset, you have to do this stuff to kind of feel how it differs from other types of training. Right. So, so those are our two definitions unsustainable, not driven primarily by aerobic metabolism, primarily being the keyword in the bouts of work that are classified above your, your critical power. Yeah. And another, another reference for people, uh, and we've talked about getting Michael Fitzgerald on, 
uh, the podcast, which we should still try to figure that yep. out. But he he did a little series on his podcast on critical power. So he did another good good reference. Uh, spiraling out podcast. Yeah. They they yeah. went through three or four episodes, and he kind of uh, outlined it uh, really well. So that could be a a good resource for somebody to get information from someone who teaches who works with CrossFitters and who's well versed in the functional fitness space. Yeah, and again, just to highlight, I think the taking that and like you said, you can look at that white paper that um, we've looked at and, and you can see what it is on paper, mm -hmm. um, but putting it in a mixed setting. But when you get the understanding of it on paper, then going and trying to feel that is where it, it can really help mold mm -hmm. your perception of it and how to, how to do it and how to feel it. So I, I wrote here a, a, a definition for critical power, just to give a little insight on what that refers to. So critical power is the highest sustainable rate of work mainly driven by aerobic metabolism. This would be the pace we discussed in the aerobic training episode. When speaking about pain training, this pace is faster and thus not sustainable for long. So that would be a definition to give more context around critical, critical power. Mm -hmm. A couple more little bullet points. Uh, when you are operating at or below your critical power, aerobic training paces, you can work for long extended periods without lactate fatigue, excessively accumulating. So that ties into if you're above it, then you are getting into, uh, well, hold on. I don't want to get ahead of myself. The next point is when you're operating above your critical power anaerobic training paces, you're working on borrowed time. As a result, the recovery window will be much longer to accommodate for excessive energy usage. For example, the rest won't be one-to-one, -one, but possibly one to four or one to six. Yeah. So another thing that I guess a point to note here is that a lot of people, so the critical power below that uh, operating below that is you can work with that at an extended period of times without accumulating lactate or fatigue. So I would probably argue, and I would think you would agree that most people probably, and it's like that gray zone are working when they're doing quote unquote aerobic training are probably operating a little too hard getting into that kind of gray zone. They are accumulating some fatigue and, and some lactate, but they're not in the pain training either. And so they're getting into this gray zone where, and we'll probably talk about that um, as we go. But if you're, if you're aerobic training, that's the problem with your aerobic training being a little bit too hard. And a lot of people don't see that as they're just getting better because they're pushing themselves hard. But if your aerobic training is a little bit too hard, as you mentioned before, one of the limitations in pain training is not being able to do it if you don't have the ability from either a strength perspective or power perspective or from a, a nervous system perspective, and you just don't have the ability to go there. And that can be from operating with your quote-unquote aerobic training above your critical power. So just yes. something to note. Yep. Yeah, it, I, that's one of the – the beauties around aerobic training is you can help people learn what sustainable work is for them with through volume, through practice, through that whole process and uh, progression so that the, you're able to, uh, again, segregate these different categories of, of work and of effort and of duration of, of, of work and effort. So you're right. A lot of people who haven't done, conscious aerobic training or even pain training as well 
it, the lines might be more blurred. And then now you're, you're not necessarily working on a specific aspect of your training. That's going to get you better relative to your goal. So knowing the differences between the two and also being able to uh, execute aerobic training effectively and optimally helps segregate those categories a bit more. Yeah. I was just thinking, and I don't know if you've used this, but I was just thinking, you know, a lot of times when we're trying to get people to understand aerobic training and to do aerobic training at the appropriate intensities, we're, you know, talking to them, tell them to slow down, tell them to uh, control their, maybe control their breathing or do it at a more sustainable pace or stay relaxed and things like that, or extend the time out. Mm-hmm. And we, we try to get them to do that by doing that. I wonder if, have you ever used, pain training to get them to understand that this is what pain training is supposed to feel like in your, cause a lot of times the question comes, if I'm only doing easy aerobic work, how am I going to get faster? Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe allowing them to do some pain training and say, this is how we're going to get faster. Although the extending mm-hmm. volume and everything does help them get faster. If that could potentially help them say, okay, I am going to do some pain training and going to get there. So mm-hmm. this helps me separate out the aerobic training. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I, the times I've used it outside of preparing for competition is usually with people who are too slow. They're, Mm -hmm. they're too, what we would call too aerobic, like their essence Mm -hmm. is too enduring. Mm -hmm. And so I'll use, I'll use pieces of work that, yeah, on paper look, look like what we would call, you know, pain training. But again, it's only pain training based upon what the person's actually experiencing, like mm-hmm. the perceptual experience and, and physiological adaptation is really what's dictating what they're actually doing because that person I'm doing it with, it could just be really hard aerobic threshold work for them. It's not mm-hmm. really, you know, anaerobic pain training. So mm-hmm. that's where proper design uh, rest uh, intention, all that comes into the play because the, uh, the dose response, as as we know, person, modality, intention equals dose. So, yes, we can control for the modalities. Uh, we have the person. And then if we can bring the right intention, then we can get the dose we want. So I've used that with the, that type of avatar. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a good question because you do get people who, who, who would question, well, am I going to get better going slower, doing more? And so I think a lot of it, I have a conversation with them around, well, what does better really mean? And what mm-hmm. is going faster really mean? And then what the, what I usually go towards is efficiency and economy. That's kind of where my brain, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm biased right now when I think about it with people. I, I don't think about going faster. I think about being more efficient with the task such mm-hmm. that fatigue doesn't accumulate as quickly and you can e- extend out your power longer. Mm-hmm. And then as a result, you can build more volume upon that and more speed. Um, so I try to, I tried to share how I look at it a little differently and then that usually resonates. And then we get into the training and then when we get to the pain training and progressing that like this time of year, you'll see the clients who go, Oh yeah, I can definitely see the difference now between this Mm -hmm. versus what we were doing. Uh, So that would be, I guess how I approach that. It's a good question. Yeah. I think it would be a special person because obviously if it's somebody like super high power, Mm-hmm. Danny Nichols type, like yeah, that that wouldn't work. But it, if so, it would have to be somebody who's 
pretty aerobic in essence, but just still wanting to push threshold all the time. So it'd be a, it'd be a unique mm -hmm. scenario, but let's get into the, why we do it and the purposes and stuff, because I feel like we're getting close to leading into examples. So let's get into yeah. that first. Yeah. Real quick, let me read that special consideration, which I kind of oh yeah, skipped over. That. I kind of mentioned up front, but it's I guess it's worth you know it's worth repeating. So, I wrote for special considerations when you solely util when you are solely geez when you, you are so <laughs> you want to read it? Go ahead, go ahead, please. <laughs> when you're solely utilizing machines for your training, you can leverage hard data on paces based on tests you've performed to dictate the optimal pace for those intervals. Once you add in varied movements, i.e. rowing, kettlebell swings, burpees, you can't use the same data numbers to drive your pacing strategy. You have to develop your own unique pacing strategy based on your current ability level. You must know yourself and know the pace and effort level through experiencing it. Boom. Thank you, Mike. That's <laughs> perfect. Okay. So let's get into uh, why we perform pain training. Cool. So a few years ago, it was the, the three of these four were, were how I learned what the real purpose was behind it. And then in the last two to three years, the fourth one has become more of the, the lead figure in why you really mm -hmm. do this type of training. Um, so the four are confidence, booster for aerobic system, metabolic advantage, and stress adaptation. So the confidence one is, is what I believe is more of the real reason why we would do it is you're trying to build confidence in the person. And each of them, I kind of, I elaborate a little bit on what each of them means and why, you know, why they're connected to pain training. So I guess I'll, let me go ahead and read the confidence and then uh, we can open it up or, or I'll, or you can go ahead and read the one following that. So confidence, if you strip it all the way down, this is what the aim is for implementing this type of work building the confidence in the athlete to push, to believe that they can push themselves and have more in the tank to give when the time comes. Bouts of pain training when dosed appropriately can unlock hidden potential. So that's what I think of when I think of the confidence being built through this type of training where I'm trying to develop uh, a deeper understanding that they can do more and that they can hang in there longer than they once thought. Yeah, I love this. Uh, I think this is a, like you said, a, a huge piece of this type of training. And this is, this is the stuff that I don't think that you get in the literature and, and because there's some of this that maybe it's not pain training or maybe it's not true lactate training, um, but it's just stuff done at higher paces to build some confidence. So mm -hmm. I even, I even think about that, like doing like certain athletes I have do, certain styles of toe to bar or thrusters or things where we're doing them at different speed. And mm -hmm. like, if we're doing an EMOM and trying to do toes to bars as fast as possible, it's unlikely that's ever going to come up in a competition. Mm -hmm. But if we can learn to do it at a faster pace, when we go to a more relaxed pace, then it's where we have that much more confidence and we have that much more confidence in our ability to sustain because we're going at a quote unquote slower pace, which is kind of getting off the topic. But if we take that into this kind of scenario, if we we're going to get into some examples mm -hmm. below, but if we do 21 chest bar as fast as possible, 21 thrusters, 21 cow bikes, and we do that as fast as possible. Well, we, now we know that when we slow down just a little bit, 
we can sustain that for an extended period of time, whether that's from the actual lactate production in our blood or whether it's from just the confidence of knowing we did it, whatever doesn't really matter. It's a confidence boost and it helps us mm -hmm. sustain a little bit better. So I love the confidence adaptation from this. It, it's that, uh, the unknown variable, which is, you know, the mind and the psychology mm -hmm. that's always at place because you, you're, you're not divorcing the body from the mind. They're inter, they're mm -hmm. intricately connected. So you, you have to acknowledge and, and, and try to understand what role that's going to play and how, uh, your body works. I, I like, I've always loved, uh, uh, the statement, uh, psychology drives physiology. So if you, if you think of it from that lens, what can I do to get their mind state in such a way that the physiology can be expressed to its ultimate or its, its current potential level. And so this is, you know, that confidence, what we're speaking to. Yeah, I want to I want to come back back to that when we get to the examples and stuff. But cool, go ahead and progress on from there. So, booster for the aerobic system. As you increase the exposure to pain training, the athlete will spend more time at or slightly above their threshold. You can call this flirting with threshold. This will help raise your system's ability to perform at a higher work rates for longer periods. Simple. Yep. So the way I the way I kind of explain that to athletes um is their ability to i like that word flirting with threshold and i usually say like if we have a line that's kind of our threshold and if we're if we take a uh iron man athlete or a marathon person if we if they tip over that line there's no real bouncing back from that there's no recovering but if we do a little bit of training in this pain training in this lactate training then we can we can not only can we push that a little bit higher and flirt with a little bit more, but we can even learn to tip over and be able to pull back and go kind of back and forth within a 15 minute or 20 minute AMRAP. Mm -hmm. Perfect. All right. Third metabolic advantage. So the hypothesis here, the hypothesis here is pain training will upregulate the body's ability to clear lactate and reuptake it as a fuel source during strenuous exercise. Lactate is a fuel source for the body and can be more efficiently utilized at higher intensities when progressively trained to do so. Part of this can be connected to George Brooks, who's a, a famous physiologist out of Berkeley, who's done research on lactate and exercise. So you can look at some of his stuff. He has, a, he has something called the lactate shuttle hypothesis, which ties into this idea. Um, so this is what we're assuming is happening, which is why it's, I said hypothesis is we're assuming that as lactate production elevates due to the strenuous nature of the exercise, your body becomes better at clearing it and then turning it into a fuel source to utilize it as you continue working. So that's what we're assuming is happening, uh, physiologically. All right. And last stress adaptation. This ties into the confidence due to the nature and the sensation of this level of work of work effort, the mind and body become more adapted to the discomfort. Um, I like, I'll let you go with the next part. Cause it's you sure. Analogy. Oh, okay. Yeah. The analogy I like to use is when you put your hand over a burning flame, the first time it hurts, mm -hmm. but with each successive contact, the pain becomes less intense. The pain receptors adapt to the stimulus and the skin receptors. Um, so don't harp me on just saying pain receptors. 
If you do this too much or for too long, you will go numb and start burning your skin. This has internal implica implications as well when you perform pain training for too long. So the, the adaptation to the stress is causing a change in your perceptive experience, and that allows you to handle the discomfort or the challenge that you're exposed to. But if you do it too much, there are negative repercussions like burning your skin. <laughs> I was going to say, I would hate for people to go and burn themselves with a fire, so maybe we should talk about cold plunge. And that's just oh, yeah, yeah. Ad adaptation. There you um, go. Without burning your skin. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> I like that. Uh, yeah, no, perfect. It directly ties in with the confidence things. If you, and we talk about that a lot with the athletes and we're, when we're explaining, you know, these two minute really hard efforts, like, especially nowadays, it seems like that doesn't really get tested very much at all. But if we learn to deal with that stress, then when we have mm -hmm. something that's a little bit under that threshold and under that pain, mm -hmm. then we can, just to extend that out for a lot longer. Yep. There, there, I mean, as you go, as you get higher up there, you will get challenged with your, let's say, you know, sixth gear, your fifth mm -hmm. or sixth gear. So you mm -hmm. do need, especially I think of like a weaker person or somebody who's more enduring, like you, you need, you need to at least try to develop that gear to play at the, at the highest level. And if you don't, that's going to limit you in some way, shape or form. So most people, this training is helpful, but it, it plays a really small role in the grand scheme of things, what they have to get better at, whether it's absolute strength, skill development, capacity, learning their paces, recovery, volume tolerance. There's a lot of things that a lot of people that are lower hanging fruit than this. This is, this is something that will take you from, you know, decent to a lot better, but, there's a lot of prereqs that are going to be required before, you know, you need to throw this in. Um, but without getting lengthy there, uh, I wrote this additional purpose for uh, pain training, which I wrote improves the ability for athletes to express the test better and recover from it faster, which is always what we're trying to do. It has utility for those who can handle the work. Most cannot due to either not strong enough, can't generate enough power, overtrained, tired, which can be a byproduct of poor lifestyle recovery. So kind of tying into what I just uh, mentioned. Cool. So how does pain training differ from in-season and off-season? Um, yeah, I was going to say that the first thing is you don't do hardly any of it in the off-season. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. I know, yeah. I was writing that. I'm like, well, you really don't do a lot of it, so... <laughs> The difference you know, is it's not existent in the off season. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so one thing I've been doing recently last couple of years is I'll, and maybe I do this just because it makes, it makes sense in my head with, with, with athletes is, you know, I'll spend half of the off season and we'll be building, working on things. And then we'll have some sort of testing period where I'm checking in on certain measures of, of uh, performance for them. And so leading into that mild testing period, I've been giving them these, well, like a pain progression inside of an intensive split of training for mm -hmm. four weeks. So they do maybe like one push of four weeks tough, and then they do some testing. And it's been nice exposing them to that. So then I can see how well they're handling and recovering from that. And then also they're getting exposure to what that feels like. And then the structure shift and the intention shift. 
so that when we come back to now the winter time and we extend it out more where it's, you know, maybe 12 weeks, it's not as foreign or as such a big of a jump for them uh, in the training and the, the, just the sensation of it. So I've been doing it a little bit more than I used to, but not, not to the same degree uh, as if we were preparing for quarterfinals or the open for people traditionally. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think maybe because there's, um, like we mentioned earlier, there's still some <clears throat> unknown variables in here. Um, I've, this is something that I've probably changed my mind on, you know, a few times back and forth over the years of training. And you know, mm -hmm. I went from doing it a decent amount to stripping it all away completely to, you know, putting it back in. I, I have, especially with the higher end athletes, you know, putting it, dosing it in kind of mid season, mid off season, um, to give them some of that exposure. And, and I don't know if it's because they've maybe that, that avatar has gotten, to where they're actually doing aerobic training where they're aerobically and as opposed to the maybe a tier down some mm -hmm. of their aerobic training is pushing over into this and so they can't handle it or don't need it as much but the really high-end athletes they do their aerobic training at aerobic paces and so they do need to touch that pain every a little bit more frequently um but yeah i, I do use it in the off season just a little bit but i would say so i guess if we're gonna assume we do use it in the off season because that's one Thing, the difference is you probably won't use as much but if we are going to use mm -hmm. it it would be less frequent on a weekly basis and in a shorter uh build like you said so maybe it's a four week build of just once per week versus uh, eight to twelve week build of maybe two times per week yep exactly that's how as of right now i look at it and it seems to have uh been fruitful uh based upon people better understanding it and being prepared and uh, being able to adapt more effectively to it. So that's how it so, would differ. So we, we've mentioned it a couple of times, people that can't, can't express it or can't do it. Mm -hmm. How does, how does somebody know if they're performing it, but not expressing it? Like if we're talking to an athlete and mm -hmm. they're not getting coached by us and they're mm -hmm. just doing it on their own, they're trying to experience this. How do, how do we tell them that they are or are not expressing it? Mm -hmm. so, yeah. My, my brain's going, well, on paper, as you know, they're not, they wouldn't be strong enough. Now, mm -hmm. then you have to say, then the question becomes, well, then what's, how strong do you have to be? It's like, okay. Yeah. So that's harder to, mm -hmm. I could have to think on a little bit. So maybe, maybe a better test would be you, you, maybe you, you just do the road, the row 30, 30 for four mm -hmm. sets all out as hard mm -hmm. as you can. 30 seconds in a row, rest 30 seconds, stay strapped in the rower, do four in a row and then list out your meters per interval. Mm -hmm. And if they're all the same, or the decrement is super small, like one or two meters for all mm -hmm. four. And you're, and for a female, you're below, you know, 140. And for males, you're below 160. Then you you probably can't express mm -hmm. this system very well. Like you just, yep. you don't have the, you have the strength and power yet. That might be the simplest way. Yep. Yeah. I, I like that. Um, I would definitely say it has to be a cyclical version of mm -hmm. testing it to, to see if you can. 
Um, yep. If you're if you're unsure if you can, then I would start with the cyclical version. Um, and yeah, just seeing if you're going max effort and you give yourself one to one work to rest, and your your drop off isn't that significant, then you're not not really expressing yep. it. Um, yep. I mean, on the you know on the extreme example, you've seen people do thirty seconds and they're laying on the ground for ten or fifteen minutes trying yeah. to recover. One caveat you could get somebody who's very dampened or very tired and they do that row 30, 30 by four, and they do get about the same. So then I would look at, well, what's the score? Because if it's a female and she's in the high one forties or mid one forties and it's the same, then I would go, okay, well maybe she is dampened uh, or maybe she is tired. But that's for them not being able to express it at that, at that point in time. At that point. Yes. The point I'm getting at is she does have like the requisite yes. strength, but yes. her her system isn't set up to express it for mm-hmm. other reasons. Same with a guy. If a guy was, you know, because you'll see that sometimes they'll just, it'll be flatlined and you're like, hmm, well, I know this person's strong enough to do it. So they mm-hmm. are, they're either they're tired or they're really dampened, which most, more often than not, is they're tired and not really dampened. They're just tired because of, lifestyle recovery you know all those pieces so yeah or just the the, training and the last last caveat would be if they're just not comfortable in that machine that too give them a a ski and they've never Mm -hmm. done skier then yeah yeah okay so considerations for when design when putting this in yep so the first one i wrote down was the addition of more lactate training will demand a decrease in the volume of strength training. So this is important. Usually if you're going to increase the exposure to, well, think of it this way, you're adding a new system to the, to the system. So if before you had two buckets, you had your strength bucket, your aerobic bucket. Now you're adding this, this pain anaerobic bucket. So now you have these three buckets. So you have to, you have to be smart with the allocation of resources for all the buckets such that they're all supporting each other and moving in the right direction. So typically you're going to pull back some of the total volume. doesn't mean you're not going to do challenging strength work, but the total volume probably has to come back a little so that you can get enough quality work in with this other bucket that you're adding. Yeah. So what are you, what are you willing to give up? So Mm -hmm. just knowing that going in that, you're going to have to pull back on some things and, and that's okay because because of how it fits into the whole mm-hmm. big picture it's still it doesn't mean you can't quote unquote get stronger during this phase or express more strength during this phase you probably means, will yeah it just means the strength will the training of it will look a little bit different yep and, and being okay with that uh so this one's about the layout of it so when trying to test or train energy system so that's speaking more broadly. You have to ensure that the modalities, intensity, time frame prescribed are going to elicit the dose response for each individual. If this is not accounted for, then it is nearly impossible to say that what you claim to be testing is actually being tested. So this is where making sure that when you design it, when you're perfor- having people perform it, you're getting the dose you want. Like you can't have them do handstand push-ups and double unders. Mm-hmm. Like that's not that's not the same as thrusters and burpees. Like that's the power is going to be limited. And so you, you have to be mindful of, okay, well, what, 
how do I lay this out such that I can get the dose that I want? And I'm going to have to bias things where the, the power output can be a lot higher, which is usually uh, moving the body weight across a big distance, moderately tough loads, and then very simple machines where the turnover can be really high. Yeah. And I put a note down there below that, which is essentially the same thing. Um, but movement choice is very individualistic in the design of these workouts and the dose you're trying to get. Um, I know for me, maybe that's why I was, I always felt this better in mixed settings than I did mm -hmm. cyclical settings. And it's probably because I'm five, six and have short limbs and fast turnover on a lot of movements. And mm -hmm. so like we talked about earlier with the, the rower, or the ski, like I, I was actually not very good at getting this response just on a rower mm -hmm. <clears throat> because relatively my power wasn't great. My, I don't know if my efficiency wasn't great. I just didn't have enough mm -hmm. volume there. Whatever the reason I could get it a lot better in thrusters and burpees than I could on a rowing machine. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's one of the areas that I changed my mind on as well is, and I, I think you were in this conversation a, a few years ago. And I know Michael uh, talked about it as well. I, I think I had a conversation with him about it as well, but going, pulling, pulling mixed lactate training out of programs and going more cyclical. And so that's where I went for a little while, but then mm -hmm. I came back to getting more mixed scenarios in there, obviously depending on the person, but mm -hmm. Part of that is the confidence thing. If you're just doing it on a machine, then the the confidence doesn't 100% carry over to mix settings. But I also think that you know a lot of those at the top end are efficient at efficient enough at CrossFit movements to get to be able to get mm -hmm. that pain training in those scenarios. And obviously, some of that depends on the time as well. If you're doing you know 20 second bouts, then you can't really mm -hmm. do much mixed in there. But so the individual individualistic of the the person, if somebody has really long limbs and is a very sustaining type athlete, then it's going to, it is going to be harder for them to do a lactate mm -hmm. piece that consists of chest to bars and thrusters, um, mm -hmm. as opposed to a very short, compact athlete. And so mm -hmm. some of that just depends. That's where looking at the person, you can give one piece to one person and another piece to another, and it feel totally different. That's where feeling it yourself mm -hmm. is, is so important. I've told this to people before, like Fran, was an example people used and i said this early on that the people at the highest level fran is not even pain training anymore mm -hmm. because if you take somebody like noah olson regular pull-ups 45 regular pull-ups and 45 thrusters at 95 pounds is easy it's not mm -hmm. and he can't do it any faster mm -hmm. it's just not it's just not difficult enough for him to turn into pain training mm -hmm. yep yeah i i definitely i was along i i I got away from more mixed work of it because it was really uh, stressful, but as I've been able to work with more advanced athletes, I actually give them more of it because they can express it really well and they can handle it really well. And so it becomes a lot more potent for them. Um, so for the people in the, you know, the novice to intermediate RX people, I'm a little bit more careful with the, the volume and the layout of it, but with, semi-final or games people it's they they can they can do muscle up thruster burpee pieces well they ha well they need to eventually do stuff like that in that type of environment to fo to to maximize the expression of the skill so as they get better you you're able to okay well then let's try doing some of this and see what happens and so i've been doing that with 
with them more often and it's, it's been fruitful. Uh, but I can't use that same application with, you know, somebody who can only do 10 unbroken muscle ups, like, well, that's mm-hmm. not going to be very helpful. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, always comes back to that case by case basis. Yep. And some other things to think about there are the cycle rate mm-hmm. and the load. So like take a, a wall ball and a thruster, essentially the same movement pattern, but a wall ball can only, one can only get so heavy and two can only speed up the cycle rate so much. So wall ball is not going to be in like 95% of the scenarios, yep. not going to work in a, in a pain training because you can't mm-hmm. get the load heavy enough or the cycle rate heavy enough. But you, with the thruster, you can. You can adjust the load mm-hmm. accordingly. You can make the cycle rate a little bit faster. Um, kettlebell swings are kind of in that. Like kettlebell swings are difficult to do in that scenario. Obviously, we have our kind of three-ish minute test that has kettlebell swings in there. And so if they're dosed in appropriately, they can be. But they're another one that's a lot of people I find putting in lactate session, but it actually doesn't fit because it's just not a fast enough cycle rate. Um mm-hmm. So that, that plays a factor as well when you're thinking about the athlete. Can they – is the load heavy enough for them? Um, and obviously not too heavy. And can they cycle – can the cycle rate be fast enough for them to get into this mm-hmm. feeling? Uh, and and then I wouldn't say – yeah, let's say final note on that. Aerobic training won't teach people how to recover from threshold work. So if people aren't doing – pain training builds, they won't know how to recover from that level of effort or from, uh, unsustainable work. So that's also something that is obvious, but it's worth reiterating that again, if you only have the two buckets, you have your strength bucket and your aerobic training bucket, those aren't enough to prepare the system to handle work that would be in that third bucket. So you have to, you have to bring in that third bucket to prepare the system and the psychology to handle the uh, intensity and the recovery of that work so that they can get back into more training and more competing, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So we're pretty deep in time. Do, do we want to, we then mean got into the progressions Uh and the scenarios and we talked about offline, the kind of bonus episode of, of the sport training. Do we want to, push and go into the sport training or we want to try to get this in real quick um that's a good question how about how about we talk about length of use and then we say <laughs> we save uh training design examples for the one where we talk about maybe the the integration of all of them in a training scenario cool. sound good yep perfect so one piece on the length of use or let's say the initial piece is once you start giving somebody this third bucket, you, you need to see how well they can handle and recover and adapt to it. Because if you do too much of it, they could get really tired or they just won't express it really well. So this is, this is an argument for why in the off season, you could do these smaller builds to just get a, a reference point on how capable is their system right now to handle this, this more intensive work. And some people, let's say they're a faster adapter, usually those that are uh, better, higher training age, they know themselves well, they might need less time to get this third bucket online. So they might only need four weeks 
of progressive work in this bucket, and then their system's online ready to go for competition. Whereas some people, maybe lower training age, less advanced, don't know themselves as well, you might need to give them 12 to 14 weeks of a very small, slow progressive build to allow their system time to understand like what this is and what's going on and how do I adapt to it. So that's where knowing the person, their training history, and then tying that into the goal can give you insight on what would be the best application of this, uh, this bucket of training. Yeah. And for, for an individual thinking about this for themselves, that doesn't have a coach just trying to think in practical terms. Like if you think about, if you're somebody that thinks about doing 30 seconds all out on the bike and that immediately kind of on one hand sounds exciting and two, you know how painful it's going to be, then you're probably a, a faster adapter and, and won't need as many hits on it. Whereas if you're somebody who's like, I mean, I can do 30 seconds all out on the bike, but then I can do it again and another 30 to 60 seconds rest, I can do it again. Then that's the person who's going to take a build. They're going to need to start with a really short time domain so that they can develop that fast turnover and that high power and build over the course of two or three months into that. Whereas the other person, they only need a few hits on it. Like you said, it gets it right mm -hmm. back into their system and they're ready to ready to rev up and go. Yep. And then from a, a, a progression standpoint, the, the principal approach for me is about eight weeks eight to 12 weeks of each week, it's extending out. And after once we're above 60 seconds of work, so it'll start, start at 10 seconds, 10 seconds, 15, 20, 30, 40, 60. So that's six weeks. Once I'm past 60 with people, then I start going into mixing movements for those that can handle it. And then it's 90 seconds, 120 seconds, 150 seconds and then the fourth week would be which is the 10th week is is three minutes worth and so by that three minute mark so after 10 weeks now we're pretty much just doing sports specific scenarios for time that are hard and then the weeks after that which would be another three four weeks they're just doing classic competitive type events which with the intent and the uh the layout of the test you're assuming that they're getting a dose that's similar to what they've been training. So that's the idea of the progression is you're, you're building the bucket, you're building the system and you're getting it online so that now it's starting to get really close to that aerobic bucket. And those guys are becoming very close to each other so that when they go into a test, they have the complete package that they need to express it at the highest level and recover from it really well. Yep. And so that last point is what I was kind of talking about earlier is that that confidence piece, those, those paces start getting really close together and that's the confidence you have where you feel like you can go into any workout and, mm -hmm. and you almost feel like you're going at your fastest pace and, but you can also sustain it for a really long time. So if you've never done one of these builds appropriately, you've never felt that, then why, like you said earlier, this is just kind of the icing on the cake uh, of, training use so it's not the base it's not what everything's built off of you have to have the strength you have to have the aerobic capacity kind of platform built but this is kind of the like i said the icing on the cake that kind of makes everything mm -hmm. come together in the end and feel really really good so um, mm -hmm. it can be a powerful tool leading into a competition
Awesome. Well, I think that's a good place to stop. And yep. we'll do a, another episode where maybe we'll take a week of, of training of somebody in the midst of preparing for the open and quarterfinals. And we can talk about the, those three buckets and where it's in the training and kind of open up that a little bit. And then maybe also add in uh, some design examples for the pain training. Um, yeah. Maybe we can chat offline and come up with like what the best strategy would be, but that'll be uh, part two for this. Perfect. One. Part two of part three. Part two of part three. I love it. All right. right. Well, thank you, Mike. Yep. Crafting Fitness is powered by Crafted Coaching. To learn more about individually designed fitness and to explore our range of goal-driven programs, head to www.crafted.coach.